day, good people. You are listening to the second episode of Music and Me. I am Jamila. And I'm Jester. And I'm going to dedicate this episode to Jeffrey Owens. And if you don't know who Jeffrey Owens is, he played the character of Elvin on The Cosby Show. Recently, he's been shamed because he's working at Trader Joe's in Clifton, New Jersey. I actually have been to that Trader Joe's a few times. I didn't see him. But the fact that people are shaming him because they feel as if he's reduced to simply being a mere employee of this corporation as opposed to living up this dream of being a famous actor. Being an actor is also a job. And he is simply supplementing his income. He still does acting jobs. But to make fun of somebody because of this hierarchy of employment, that is disgusting. And I think people should leave him alone. And I think people should let him live his life. And if he felt that's what he had to do, let him do what he has to do. We all have to survive through whatever means and we shouldn't be shamed by doing whatever job we feel we need to do in order to pay our bills to feed our families to feed ourselves to pay the rent to keep a roof over our heads because people who are houseless get made fun of but then they're not supposed to have particular jobs what which one is it So leave Jeffrey Owens alone. This show is dedicated to you, Jeffrey Owens. I have no idea if you'll be listening, but wherever you are, this show is dedicated to you. (laughs) No, I totally agree with what you're saying. I think we need to really put a consideration to what we're doing when we judge people for working. And you said it all there. I mean, to be an actor is a job. And I think in a lot of ways, acting If you have an agent, which most actors need, (laughs) you have to pay the agent. So there are a lot of streams of income that are already divided when you even land a gig. Just this judgment, it has no purpose. And I think this is good that we're dedicating this episode to him because it brings to light our responsibility and how we look at people who we think are just designed to please us and actually remember that they have to survive in this system too so hats off to jeffrey now i've been thinking about this a lot i wrote a blog page about this looking at michael jackson as a worker and because his employment was in the entertainment field same as prince we look at that as somehow being a glorious position in the hierarchy of employment and it's not your body wears down you're expected to perform on a dime you're expected to be singing in the same way you did in 1975 which is in my view why he started to lip sync a lot because people expected this particular type of voice from him but they didn't understand the health conditions he was going through they didn't understand what Prince was going through where he needed hip replacement surgery. They expected him to continue to jump off of risers, off of pianos, and their bodies wore down to 
a point where they had to end up using painkillers and depend on those painkillers. Let's not forget 1984, the Pepsi commercial. I was around when that happened. He, Michael started using painkillers and continued to use them. And in 1993, when all that stuff was going on, he acknowledged, you know, I have a dependency on painkillers. And he continued to have that dependency after re-examining the autopsy, I'm going to say addiction to painkillers and propofol at that time. People will argue it's not an addiction, it was dependency. But if you really look at the patterns, it, it is addiction. And that's not shaming Michael. People who have good intentions, people who are good people, you know, sometimes they are addicted to drugs. They're addicted to painkillers, whatever that is. We, we shouldn't shame people for how they feel they need to survive. If they're not harming people, they may be harming themselves, but we shouldn't shame people because of the experiences they face and they feel they need these drugs in order to simply live every day. Yes. I thank you for saying that because, again, I think a lot of people are so quick to judge someone because of addiction. But I always have to remind people that addiction is a complex neurological disease. It's not as easy as, oh, let me just take this pill. You know, the act of depending on a drug, it's not something we should just judge people for. And like you said, we shouldn't shame people for doing what they need to do to survive. And it's misguided, I think, especially with entertainers and artists. We just literally brush it off like, oh, they're just addicts. Oh, they're just addicts. Oh, they, they did that to themselves. And it's a very ignorant thing to do, because if you've suffered from any kind of ailment, um, you know the relationship with getting better. You want to get better. And if something that you're taking is helping you, even if it's helping you by a fraction, that's enough. And so. We need to stop shaming people for addiction. To say that someone had an addiction to pain pills is not a bad thing. It doesn't reflect badly. I mean, that's another thing. We stigmatize drugs because that's just a blanket term for anything that someone consumes, drugs. And then we think, oh, it's bad. It's just as bad as cocaine or something. And it's not the same thing. I kind of really dislike when we do that to anyone struggling with any manner of addiction. Quick judgment. It's not helpful and it doesn't actually put us on the path to understanding or diagnosing why someone is going with the go-through. Absolutely. And I haven't seen a lot of reportage in terms of Prince Rogers Nelson's autopsy, but there was an in-depth one about Michael Jackson's autopsy. Somehow the universe told me to look into this autopsy report again and I'm thinking about people working again working versus a job and I know both Prince and Michael they loved what they did and so it on some level was work but when you start thinking about the degradation of the body when you start thinking about the expectations they were facing the battles with Warner Brothers, the battles with Sony, like that's all part of the job. Eventually, their bodies gave out and people, oh, I've never had an opportunity to see him. And 
And we have to think about what they went through. And so I'm going to read a little bit of this report for Michael and break it down a little bit. Uh, if you know anything, Jesse, about the Prince autopsy and how it's been broken down, please talk about that. I haven't seen anything. I just saw just the autopsy report with not a lot of explanation. Mm-hmm. But with the Michael autopsy, it it broke my heart reading it again. But that's I, I think it was good that the universe said you need to read this because I think it, it is telling in terms of where we're going to go with this episode and this episode we haven't even gotten to what we're going to talk about but i think it was important to preface the episode with this discussion it says michael jackson was a 50 year old man his autopsy demonstrated that he suffered from many common medical conditions although none of these illnesses and findings contributed to his death they are of interest from a medical curiosity standpoint And reading this again, I I am definitely sure he would not have survived the residency. I maintain that by the third show, he would have given out like Jackie Wilson, who was one of his teachers. Jackie Wilson, he straight up collapsed on stage, ended up being in a coma for a while, and then transcended. I really think that would have happened to Michael. He either would have been in a coma or he would have just killed over right there on stage. I don't really know, but I don't think he would have survived all 50 shows. So it says Michael Jackson's autopsy demonstrated that he had nodular prostatic hyperplasia. So that means his prostate gland was just enlarged. He was leaning more towards it being benign. But in the case of the polyp in his colon, they were saying it is likely that Mr. Jackson had no symptoms from this and had no knowledge of it. A routine colonoscopy would have identified the polyp and permitted biopsy and removal. And let me tell you, I have had a biopsy before. I don't wish that on anyone. It is one of the most painful things to experience in the whole world. Oh, my goodness. Because there's can you process? Can you explain what that process is about? They're scraping your cells. I don't know how else to describe that, and (laughs) it hurts. It's you can't be put to sleep or anything. You you can, I guess, that they can localize the area with and and numb it if you feel that strongly about it. But um, when I had a biopsy, I did not (laughs) have localized meds, and it was. It was literally one of the worst pains I've ever felt in my life. And, uh, yeah, I don't wish that on people. I mean, I I think having biopsies are important to check if you have cancer. But just a biopsy for the sake of biopsy, I don't don't wish that on people. No, 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 no. (laughs) Uh, It says the American Cancer Society recommends routine screening colonoscopy beginning at age 50 for both men and women. Follow-up evaluations depend on whether whether or not polyps and malignancies are detected. In terms of the enlarged prostate or the nodular prosthetic hypoplasia, uh, that is the reason why Michael wore a condom-type catheter. Uh, apparently, it was difficult for him to go to the bathroom 
And I know that was one of the things Conrad Murray talked about. I'm not sure why he revealed all that stuff. Uh, I figure there's something. Because he's an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, let Michael have his privacy. And I know, like, in, in these reports, that's one thing. But I think Conrad Murray just openly talked about that stuff without this report. So, yeah, that's just weird. Why are you telling us all that? I don't. Anyway, I guess you're right. (laughs) Uh, It says several x-rays were taken of Mr. Jackson's skeletal system. He had mild degenerative spondylosis of the lower thoracic spine and suffered from degenerative osteoarthritis in several joints including his lower lumbar spine and digits. <sighs> he was also found to have a small cervical rib on the second to last cervical vertebrae on the right side of his neck. Ooh. Cervical ribs occur in five to ten of the population percent of the population, and they can cause thoracic outlet syndrome. It is unknown if Michael Jackson suffered syndromes from his cervical rib. Thoracic outlet syndrome results when the rib compresses or traps the brachial plexus and the subclavian artery that supply the ipsilateral hand and arm. Such compression often results in sharp burning or aching pain as well as numbness, weakness, and paresthesias in the affected arm. And one of the things... I wondered about because he wore tape on his fingers. I wonder if this had to do with the pain in his fingers as opposed to the Raynaud's uh, phenomenon. And the Raynaud's phenomenon is when um, the blood vessels, they kind of contract something to that effect. And, and it's just very painful on your fingers. And so I wonder if it, if the, the, tape on his fingers had more to do with the arthritis. I, I was aware that he had arthritis. I think he started getting it in the 90s, which is why he started wearing those um, armbands and stuff like that. But That's uh, interesting. I'm sure it was multi-purposed because I always felt, now it makes sense if he was wearing those, the tape on his fingers uh, as a um, medical reason but i always thought it was also just to get your attention on stage because it's white i mean there are a Mm -hmm. lot of ways artists tend to do that where they'll mask something by making it a statement of fashion of some kind so but that makes sense yeah and so i think he utilized his ailments and made it definitely part of his fashion artists have been known to do that Mm -hmm. and people like yeah i'm gonna we had this glove and the Cicely Tyson was interviewed and said the reason for the glove was because of the vitiligo. Is that true or not? It makes sense. It makes but sense. He's yeah. using, he's using these bits of fashion to conceal something that's medical. And that's, I think, a huge aspect of Michael's art as well. So if he's having arthritis, he's wearing things for his arms. He's wearing tapes for his fingers. Um, microscopic examination of Michael Jackson's lungs. Here we go. In 1995, uh, I'm sure people remember when he was to perform at the Beacon Theater with Marcel Marceau, and it never ended up happening because he passed out and he had pleurisy. 
his lungs were inflamed and a huge component of that was because of lupus. But we'll get to that in a minute. Microscopic examination of Michael Jackson's lungs revealed impressive and long-standing abnormalities. Both lungs were markedly inflamed with bronchiolus, chronic mm-hmm. interstitial pneumonitis, eosymphilic infiltrates, and there was evidence of fibro collagenous scarring. In addition, there was widespread congestion in both lungs and patchy areas of hemorrhage. There you go. Furthermore, two small arteries had organizing and recancelizing thromboboli. That means the arteries clotted off in the past and were in early stages of reestablishing blood flow. Wow. (laughs) There was also evidence of histiocytic desquamation and focal desquamation of the respiratory lining with squamous metaplasia. This means that cells were sliding off of the inner lining of his airways within each lung and there was a change in cell type. These findings are very abnormal. In life, such pathology could cause shortness of breath and difficulty breathing as well as chronic cough. Michael Jackson's lung pathology would have made it difficult for him to exert himself physically and probably caused him fatigue easily. I'm telling you, I'm convinced that he would not have made made it pass. I'm gonna I'm gonna give it ten shows, and I'm still maintaining the third show. Mm. Dental examination revealed a root canal along with endoseal implants and metallic and ceramic restoration of many different teeth. His skin demonstrated patches of dark pigmented and lighter less pigmented areas consistent with vitiligo. The combination of vitiligo, arthritis, and lung inflammation raises a concern for an autoimmune disease. In fact, in 1986, Michael Jackson was diagnosed with systemic lupus, Mm. systemic lupus erythematosus, SLE. SLE is a serious and potentially life-threatening disease that can occur at any age. It affects women more commonly than men and Africans and Asians more commonly than others. Symptoms vary widely and often flare or go into remission frequently. Common symptoms include chest pain, fatigue, fever, hair loss, skin rash, swollen lymph nodes. And I have had swollen lymph nodes and it is no joke. It is painful. So I can imagine someone who has lupus that's dealing with swollen lymph nodes. Oh, my goodness. Sensitivity to sunlight and mouth sores. Complications from SLE includes thrombosis, hemolysis, pleural and pericardial effusion, stroke, and vasculitis. There is no cure for SLE, and treatment usually consists of anti-inflammatory medications and steroids. Although Michael Jackson had received treatment for lupus in the past, he was not on any such therapy at the time of his death. His SLE was reportedly in remission. However, the pulmonary findings suggest that it caused significant lung injury. And I wonder those times when he had the weight gain, I have a feeling he was on prednisone or some kind of steroid. He definitely looked like he was on some kind of steroid to either deal with the lupus or some kind of ailment. Mm-hmm. But people are like, oh, he looks great. It's like he was dealing with some kind of ailment. He's been sick for a huge portion of his life. Right. The external examination of Michael Jackson at the time of his autopsy revealed uh, gauze pads on the right side of his neck and the 
anterocubital region of its left and right arms and on its left forearm. They were presumably sites where placement of IV catheters during CPR was attempted. And so Conrad Murray clearly was not performing CPR correctly on Michael. If I recall the 911 call that happened, you may recall this, Jesse. He was yeah. initially doing CPR on the bed. And exactly. the dispatcher was like, what are you doing? You see, why, why is he not on the floor? He's like, oh, no, 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 no. you're a doctor and you don't know that you're not supposed to do CPR on the bed. And so oh. with that, he had, he had, he was bruised. He had a bruised chest and then it says his sternum and several ribs were fractured in the report. It said, uh, Mr. Jackson had a large bruise and abrasion. His sternum and several ribs were fractured. These were undoubtedly as a result of chest compressions during CPR. This is so awful. Goodness. It's so awful. I really despise Conrad Murray because he took so many awful decisions that if he was a real doctor, which I don't believe he was, he's really a doctor. I think he, I mean, I know that there's some discussion of, I'm not sure his full medical history, but the point is he totally acted out of ignorance he could have prevented michael's death by doing a lot of different things first of all not calling his ex-girlfriend for like three hours and (laughs) then speaking i mean bringing michael jackson's son and it's the whole situation is just ridiculous and um every time i am reminded that he did cpr on the bed i'm not a doctor but i even know i knew when i was for as long as I mean you know that <laughs> when you're young that you do CPR on a hard surface you don't do it on the bed so yeah I just I'm flabbergasted when I think of all of the things that happened on the day Michael had cardiac arrest because so much could have been prevented and all of the things that could have went wrong went wrong and it's just awful and I don't know why if He's going through a cardiac arrest. Why would you leave him? Yeah, why would you leave him? Why would you wait so long to call even the ambulance? Right. That's what makes me think. I mean, I believe Michael was murdered. I don't believe it was a act of anything other than that. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I can go and we can talk about that on another day. That's another episode. Yeah, that's another episode. (laughs) Were, Were Michael and Prince murdered? That's another episode, good people. But wanted to bring this point. To, to make a point about all of the other things, the coding of their messages. And I think this is a huge component of that, the, the illnesses Michael had. And again, I can't speak too much to Prince because I only saw a very brief report. But what I do know about Prince was that his hips were hurting and he had hip replacement surgery just the pain both of them went through because of the years and years of hard performing on their bodies. For Michael to have lupus, I don't know if Prince had any ailments. I know when he was young, he had epilepsy. I don't know if he had any episodes when he was older. That's the thing. I I don't know a lot of the details. And if that contributed to what happened, I don't know. But Michael's report seemed to be much more in-depth here and I think it was a huge component of how they lived their lives. And it does lead to decoding a lot of their songs and a lot of their performances. How they dress 
how they sang. Again, I think Michael did in a lot of ways lip sync because of these health issues and not because, well, he was going through a trial and this, like there were deeper issues health wise that he was going through. And so I think this is important to preface because of that. With the CPR, Annie, are you okay? That's actually one of the things they say uh, before you administer CPR when you have the training. I've had CPR training. It's been years. But you do ask Annie, are you okay? So if anyone didn't know, that's part of the chorus. It's Sweet Criminal. That is that's a fact. where he got Never it from. knew that. Okay. Yeah. So Annie, are you okay? Before you administer CPR, are you okay, Annie? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we can go on and on about Kyra. Right? I don't even want to get started because I get heated when I think of his unprofessionalism and just what he did to Michael. So oh, it's a tragedy. But it's like you said, I mean, we don't really know. A lot of times when we look at these artists and performers, we're not seeing we obviously don't know their medical history and what they're doing to absolve the pains that they have. And I think we really need to consider that there's a lot of things we don't know. Um, as for Prince, I know that his autopsy was not revealed, but if you pay any close attention to Prince throughout his life, you can see moments where he was really small. I mean, he's always been quite thin, but there are certain periods in his life where he was thinner than usual. And I would say the last few years of his life was definitely the case. 2014 to 2016, he was really thin. And you can see how he used turtlenecks to mask the fact that his neck was really, you know, skinny. And um, he was very interesting with fashion, too, much like Michael. He would use, again, turtlenecks. He would wear a lot of long shirts to hide his figure. I think he was very clear, especially towards the end, his hands. He wore a lot of gloves and he would just use a lot of different clothes to kind of mask the fact that he was really thin. Just even piano and mic, you know, he's sitting down at the piano. Um, and even in 2009 was a time where he was obviously very sick. If you were to look at him, I mean, he looked great. I mean, that's the thing. You say, oh, but he looks good. Like, yeah, he looks good. But you can see he's really skinny and he's not moving. You know, when you think of the Montrose show in 2009, that's one of my favorite shows. It's an amazing show, but he's not doing a lot of movement. I mean, there's one period where he's jumping up and down. But in terms of the usual of Prince, you know, breaking all barriers by jumping off of pianos and whatnot, he was not doing that in 2009. He stood in one place. I think that was due to his hip problems. And then when he finally got the hip surgery, you know, come to Welcome to America, think of that era, you see him dancing, you look at the performance of Kiss, he's doing this whole breakdown dedicated to just showing that he's in good shape and he's wearing sleeveless you know, shirts just showing the world that, hey, look at me, you know, I got it together. Um, but then when the pain started coming back, then he's covered up again. You know, so I think a lot of times we we don't really think of the ways artists use fashion to kind of mask the ailments and just the projection we also have as fans. We want them to look a certain way. And if they're not looking that way, then we worry. So, I mean, just the pressure of always looking 100 all the time can really get to an artist, I imagine, because it pressures them to just do more than they would probably do if they did not have that platform. It's a lot that goes into it. And I think 
we as listeners and people who appreciate artists, we should really remember that they're human. And while they have talent and while they're amazing at their craft, there's a lot that goes into it. And we shouldn't just demand on site that they deliver like when they were 25, you know, it's like you can't take a 25 or 30 year old and measure that stamina to someone who's in their 40s or 50s. I mean, things change. You grow and you're not always capable of doing what you did, even if you try. I mean, by trying and pushing the barriers, there's a risk. You know, you might break something. You might have to take weeks off. I mean, and then also with Prince again, you know, he passed away seven days before or after his last show in Atlanta. He canceled that show because he had the flu. I mean, there were obviously other things going on. We don't know. But the fact that he had to cancel the show and then he rescheduled it, he did the show. Seven days later, he's gone. That mm -hmm. says a lot. That says that there was obviously something else at play. And we don't really think about that until it happens. Obviously, hindsight is one of those things is like, oh, now it makes sense. Now we can pick up the pieces and, you know, same with Michael. We can look at the autopsy and start to see, oh, wow. OK, now I see there's a lot going on that our hope clouds because we want to see the person. Oh, I just want to see him. Oh, if only I could see. But we don't think of just the level of uh, pressure and so many other things that goes involved in performing. Absolutely. And then what did Prince say? That if our bodies wear out, we'll get new ones. Is that? That's what he said in reflection. <laughs> if bodies wear out, we'll get new ones. I love that. That's a, I forget all about that lyric. That's a good one. <laughs> now we should start talking about the songs. Let's, let's, let's go into it. Uh, yes. Should. But I, I think what you said was a perfect segue into that because both of them did say to a particular extent, if you want to know anything about my life, listen to my music. And we started thinking about which songs were reflective of their lives. I started thinking about the whole notion of the id, the ego, and the super ego. And when people talk about ego, uh, for the most part, they're thinking, oh, you're conceited. Oh, you're narcissistic. And I think that goes with the society where ingrained with it under capitalism is ego is individualism ego is attaining this thing where you do no matter what it is to get where you go so the it is more about the pleasure principle and attaining whatever that is and the ego is the reality that one faces and the super ego is the the moral sensibilities one has and started thinking about Let's let's talk about what songs represent the id, what songs represent the super super ego, and what songs represent the ego, the reality of the particular situation. Mm -hmm. And with morality, I would say Prince has a, a, a little more edge on that than Michael. <laughs> <laughs> but Michael definitely had some songs representing the super ego, and I would even say short films. But with Prince. Uh, what would you say are some songs representing the super ego in major ways? The super ego. Yeah. So let's say a song like Little Red Corvette. It's yes. straight up. It's a moral tale of a woman who's too fast, but he's using metaphor. He's using he's using a, meta a car as a metaphor, a Corvette. And then he's using other terms like 
racing and so it's just the the jockeys right. mm-hmm. but of course jockeys are also underwear <laughs> yes <laughs> double um, entendre and all of that exactly yeah. that's a perfect example i think you hit it uh little rare carvette i think anyone who's a prince fan even if you're not a prince fan you've heard that song at any given point and uh that's a very um specific meaning he's you know slow down you got to slow down you're moving much too fast that's a that's a really good example. He has other songs too where he you take a song like 1999 even. You know, mm-hmm. this is a song it's apocalypto. He has a lot of themes where he's basically talking about the end times or some sense of the end. So we're going to dance our life away because the world is going crazy. There are a lot of songs that I feel when Prince speaks, especially if it's something political, take a song like Dear Mr. Man, which I think is probably his most political in terms of he's talking about the Constitution and he's talking about, you know, the amendments and all of that. But one of my favorites is Avalanche. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, since the estate finally put his back catalog on streaming services, it's fairly easy to hear this song. Before, it was very hard to hear it. And I remember when I first heard the album i was so amazed and surprised that prince made a song like this because it's not a typical thing for him to usually talk about u.s presidents but you know he talks about abraham lincoln being a racist and how he was never in favor of you know setting our people free um so i really enjoyed that song because it sounds like he's at least partially aware because the narrative we hear often is that abraham lincoln was a great president he cared for the slaves you know he wanted to free them it's like no he did not care about anybody but himself and his party um so it was really nice to hear that because i think again it showed that it wasn't just about um because prince tends to have a lot of music where he's he asks questions instead of actually giving solutions like what are we doing to to stop what's happening mm-hmm. so you can think of songs like cinnamon girl or resolution you know the main problem with war is that no one ever wins uh he, he'll use very simple messaging he's he doesn't usually get that deep i think in his analysis of of what's happening i mean especially when you take an issue like gun control and annie christian for instance he's just like we need gun control and even on his last album his first song baltimore he's like take the guns away which is a very simple thing to say (laughs) obviously it's definitely more nuanced than taking the guns away but um i think his approach to issues of gun violence and whatnot was just oh well we need to take care of each other we're all this and we're all in this together why do we need these weapons that are killing people and then he talks a bit about war and and musicology is scattered throughout his uh career but in terms of a moral compass, I think he was very moralistic in the sense of God being the the savior of it all. So you take a song like For the Tears in Your Eyes, which I actually love. It's a beautiful kind of message. Um, it's it's definitely targeted to those who believe in the Christian God, because it's, you know, there is a man who turned stone to bread with the palm of his hand. I mean, it's the same thing with We Are the World in a way, because Michael's talking about that too in Lana Ritchie, where there are biblical messages. But I think Prince, it always surprises me when people say, oh, Prince, he got so religious throughout his, it's like he's always been (laughs) very religious in his music. Uh, His first album was the second coming or his first tour. 
title was the second coming and the B side to Purple Rain was God. I mean, he was, I love that song. yeah, it's a beautiful one too. So, I mean, I think people kind of sometimes get lost in the sauce when it comes to Prince and God because at some points it can seem too preachy and then at other points it may not hit. Well, I think you make interesting points because I started thinking about other songs. I was thinking, excuse me, of a song like Act of God, where he is pointing to people who use religion to do evil things. Prince was critiquing people, politicians, etc., who utilize religion as a means to oppress other people. And they call that an act of God. So I yes. think that's definitely one of his moral stories. And then, of course, there's the cross, which uh-huh. turned into the Christ when he became a <laughs> <in> W. <laughs> yes. mm-hmm. And so that that's the funny thing, because a lot of people think when he became JW, he somehow became this moral Christian. He had songs like that. As you mentioned, God, mm-hmm. which is actually one of my top favorite Prince songs. And you would look at the side of Purple Rain. What is that side A? I don't. I don't even. <laughs> but uh, right after Darling Nikki, what happens? It's backwards, but it goes, yeah. "Hello, how are you? I'm fine, because I know the Lord is coming soon." Right. Yeah. And, so and that's it, on one of the most explicit songs. Yes. You know, in a way of really challenging spirituality with uh, sexuality. But I'm glad you mentioned Act of God. That's a really good example of um, him interrogating religion using it for war another song that is not so well known because it's not on any album he just dropped it in 2013 it's called um same page different book and i really mm. like that song because he's basically saying you know we're on the same page different book so much more in common if we're only if we only look and he's making the comparison saying you know whether you believe in muhammad or islam and christianity it's the same page it's just a different book so he seemed to at least come out of the extreme dogmatism like it's just Jehovah, you know, <laughs> at one time. So, yeah. But even a song like Hello, which was highly critical of the song We Are the World. Uh, yeah. And I think he thought of We Are the World as maudlin and just like, OK, you're doing this charity, but where's the money going? And I think that's a perfectly fine question to ask. He's a, and he says, I'm not going to take part in the project, but I will contribute for the tears in your eyes. But then I'll do this other song and I want to do an episode on this as well. The perceived battle between Prince and Michael. I definitely think it was a creative competition, but I think there were definitely some ideological differences between them in some ways. I think they both were very spiritual people, but in terms of day-to-day lives, there were there was a little bit of a difference, and I think that's one of the differences there. Uh, and they both used it in their in their music. Hello, which ended up on the compilation package, <laughs> that was definitely a scathing critique of "We Are the World." And it's like, wow. And I actually like that song. Yeah, I really. MJ yeah. Fans. <laughs> I actually like "For the Tears in Your Eyes" better than "We Are the World." Sorry, MJ fans. <laughs> you Sorry. <laughs> I do. I like both of them. I mean, I love "We Are the World" and I love um, "For the Tears in Your Eyes," and I love "Hello," especially the extended version of that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, 
I think it's funny that he did that. I think he didn't want. It's just like the award show when you know they're all singing "We Are the World" and he's sucking the lollipop, and Qu- Quincy Jones gives him the mic and he gives him his lollipop. Like I'm not taking this shit. Yes. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and then the, um, one of my favorite, quote unquote, moral. I, I don't know if I would call it moral, but definitely politically minded songs is "Family Name." Yes. And- yes. That's I did have that on my list preparing for this podcast. I'm glad you mentioned it because that's a really good one. Because it really gets into it. And so it has the beginning, which seems like, I don't know how long. It seems like it's maybe three or four minutes. This yeah, intro. it's pretty long. <laughs> it's probably. <laughs> and it's talking about the Akashic Records. And it goes into it. And so Prince is acknowledging that he's African. And yeah. I don't I don't understand <laughs> this whole thing. Well, Prince, is, Prince and Michael are just. They, you know, they go beyond race. They, they talk about being African in their music and in their speeches. So that, that's a whole other episode yeah. as well. But, you know, Prince goes into the Akashic Records and that's, you want to get deep into that. And so Prince was getting deep into stuff into his music. You want to talk about just decoding Prince interviews? That deserves a whole other episode. Ooh, yeah, it does. <laughs> but, um, so he starts talking about that and then goes into the presidents who exploited African labor and then goes into Africans revolting. I mean, that yeah. is an explicit Prince song about African liberation in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so true. that is one of my favorite Prince songs from one of my was, favorite albums. <laughs> yeah. The Rainbow Children. Yeah. He does a great job with family name. That's another one that I hope more people listen to because it, was hard to hear before in terms of it being available, but now it's fairly easy to hear that song and it really goes into depth. He's really breaking it down. Just like you said, the first three or four minutes, he's just <laughs> having this conversation with the computer. You have selected African American. Uh, and, and what does it mean to be indigenous and all, all of these, you know, themes that, um, he didn't really speak about before. Cause a lot of people recall, oh, well, you know, Prince, when he first started out, he was, kind of showing himself to be this mixed breed of a person who had a, you know, being biracial. And I think a lot of that was to just get attention. But yeah. then later on, another song that he, that I think is good to mention is We March, uh, mm-hmm. released on um, the Gold Experience, where he talks right. about, you know, if this is the same avenue that my ancestors fought to liberate, how can't I get a piece of it, even if my credit's straight? He's just going into the reason why people march and protest. He talks about racism and all of that. So he's definitely spoken about it. But in contrast to Michael, what do you think about a song? Because you mentioned this to me just the other day that kind of blew my mind about songs like Man in the Mirror. Um, Mm. I wanted to, before we get into that, I think it is interesting that in We March, Prince also spoke against misogyny. And so that's yeah, all right. Yes. That's, that's another level. If this is the same sister that you can't stop calling a bitch. Right. This will be the same sister that will leave your broke ass in the ditch. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I just wanted to mention that. <laughs> that's right. The sisters, the sisters fight back. Don't yeah. <laughs> Super ego songs for Michael. And Man in the Mirror and Keep the Faith in particular. Yes, yes. I think a lot of Michael's songs have, as mentioned in the first episode of Music and We, there's a, a, 
a sense of a social conservatism, not political, but social conservatism. And so with Keep the Faith, there is a kind of build yourself up by the bootstraps sort of ideology that happens. I know Saeed Garrett and Glenn Ballard wrote that, but Michael co-wrote that as well. And Man in the Mirror, Saeed Garrett and Glenn Ballard wrote that. And Michael did not write that. Uh, mm-hmm. But a lot of people think Michael just wrote that. <laughs> yeah. But that's not true. He didn't have anything to write in the song. I think this song, I love this song, but it definitely has, in my view, a social conservative aspect to it. It is that I have to look at myself as an individual and make myself better in order for things to improve. It doesn't necessarily talk about contributing to improving the living conditions of the masses of the people. It talks about contributing to the improvement of yourself so you can look to individual situations and better those situations. And so a song like We've Had Enough to me is much more along my alley. As much as I love Keep the Faith and Man in the Mirror, We've Had Enough is in terms of my ideology as a Pan-African organizer, like that's more of my alley because it looks at, it doesn't look at the, the cause of the issues. It doesn't look at the, the context, the history, but it does look at we have to organize in mass in order to deal with these issues and in order to address the problems and organize towards the elimination of these issues we face in terms of our oppression. And so um, he does merge that with spirituality so he's not looking at it as uh, an individual it's like okay these invasions are happening houselessness is happening innocent people dying i'm not gonna be able to just save people on my own no matter what people think (laughs) Mm -hmm. we have to organize we have to work together in order to do that whereas man in the mirror keep the faith are about individual progress which is why i look at them as being socially conservative that's a very good point. And to add to that, I agree when you told me, you know, we've had enough should have been the ending of Invincible. Yes. Instead of Threatened. Although Threatened should have stayed on the album. They could have taken off 2000 watts. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just <laughs> Yes. yes. <laughs> but yes, yes, we've had enough is a great example because, again, he's challenging the money spent on war. And, I, you know, Prince had a couple of songs in 2004 in particular where he's talking about war and another example of a social uh, song that Prince did was uh, SST uh, released right after Hurricane Katrina that's one of my favorites the proceeds were dedicated to the rebuilding if I'm not mistaken correct yes yep it sure was and I love that and I love Brand New Orleans it's just an instrumental but that's one of my favorites too because you know, he's he's really just asking these important questions, which I I do think Prince and Michael were the same in the sense that they were asking questions in their songs. A lot of times the solution was obviously love and we we need to do something. But it was definitely the questions that need to be asked more instead of just a blind acceptance because of American exceptionalism. Uh, oh, well, they have a reason they're fighting for us. So if it wasn't for them, you know, that wasn't usually the premise, which I appreciate because I don't like that answer. <laughs> I think that that's a very or, or, uh, answer. They've been bombing for centuries. Yeah. 
TV. Oh, he did say that. Yeah, exactly. That's the answer that we don't need. Oh, this is uh, this always been happening. You know, that's not the answer. Um, or, or let's let's bomb them into peace. Mm. Not not looking at the history of imperialism and the history, which still happens. I mean, this is. I talk about this stuff all the time, but I think it's crucial to make those connections. So I think for Prince and Michael to have songs, again, talking about family name, to to bring those examples about Africans revolting, to bring those examples about the masses organizing so we don't have these imperialist forces take over and oppress people. I think those are important things to note in their music. Michael had a poem about Palestine, and not a lot of people know this. Look it up. Didn't know that. (laughs) Palestine, I love you. I will die for you. This is his writing. They understood what the issues were. They may not have publicly talked about all those issues, but they were aware of what the issues were. And we have to stop underestimating what Michael and Prince knew. And even Prince said, because they were trying to get him to fight with Michael. And he's like, y'all don't know. He might know some stuff that we don't know. Right. And so we have to pay attention to what's happening in between the lines. And that's why we're decoding this stuff. They understood what was going on. They both read. They they both wrote songs that are in the vaults that we may never hear that are probably absolutely more political than the songs they released. We don't know. Definitely. I mean, it's very evident that they were students and that they read a lot. Um, they knew history. That's important. That's why they had songs like this to really challenge the, the common narrative. Another Prince song that I wanted to mention is Dreamer. That's another one that I really appreciate because he's talking about, you know, being raised um, in a place like America, you know, of the red, white and blue. Never knew that there was a difference till Martin till Dr. King was on the balcony lying in a bloody pool. Mm. And he's kind of just talking about his failed expectations that America would be more than the, you know, cause the idea is that America is just this loving society. Um, so he's challenging. He's talking about chemtrails and a lot of other uh, conspiracies, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I mean, he, he was obviously aware that there's something going on. I would love to hear more of, Songs like that, that kind of just challenged, because like you mentioned, I'm sure Michael has a lot of songs that's in the vault that we've never heard. But from what we've heard, we can clearly see that there is understanding for these issues, that there's a sense of uh, compassion that they're trying to bring out to solve these problems. I do want to bring up one of the most moral songs Michael did record and was never released until posthumously, Abortion Papers. If that were to be released in his lifetime, he would, A, never hear the end of it. B, people would be throwing his records in the trash. Yeah. And then a lot of people would probably be supporting him, too. I think mm-hmm. it'd be half and half. I think the, I think so. the politically conservative audience would gladly support Michael on that end, but not on other ends. And other people who uh, are more uh, politically liberal, if you will, would probably throw his records in the trash uh, if that were released in his lifetime. And I'm actually amazed people 
do not talk about that song. It was released on Bad 25, but I haven't heard anyone talk about that song, really. Why do you think that is? I think it's interesting because I did a brief review about that Bad 25 album, and I did mention it, and um, I didn't get a lot of feedback about it. I think a lot of people avoid it because it's not a structural. I mean, you can see it's called AKA song groove. I can see that it's a groove more than anything, but it's still obviously a message instilled and um, a lot of people stray away from it. I think it also speaks to the amount of people that would agree with what he's saying, because there is a lot of people who don't think anything uh, against you know, or I should say they have a problem with the act of abortion. So it's interesting that it's not talked about. I don't know why Sony decided to release that because I know Michael would have never released it. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I don't it, think so. I don't think he would have even put it out there because, again, it is probably one of his most controversial songs. Controversial, but then at the same time, it's a very widely accepted premise that people have about it. So it's um, it's one of those songs. Again, it's like, wow, this is I mean, he was definitely raised i think it's important to consider michael was a witness for a lot of his life and that definitely had an influence on how he perceived life conception and all of that which contextualizes why he probably even did a song like it um because i one thing i remember i haven't heard the song in a while but i know he says something like signing her name against the word of god yep and that's the part that's the most like, what? <laughs> Who are you to tell another woman that, you know, she's right. signing her name <laughs> against the word of God? Like, get the hell out of here with that. But um, <laughs> those kind of ideas, it's very present. I mean, I always have to tell people, you know, Michael and Prince were both born in 1958. Mm-hmm. And that time is not much different from a lot of people now. I mean, I was born in 92 and I still was raised in those kind of ideological fallacies as it concerns morality and the responsibility of women, in particular police and women and what they do with their bodies. And uh, it's not alien for Michael or Prince to hear those kind of things that just basically taking away the agency of women by saying that they're subjective. I mean, even, you know, we mentioned the Rainbow Children. There's a lot of that, you know, Prince is, oh, the woman is in subject to man and man is in subject to God. And, mm-hmm. you know, so they still were kids from that era. And I don't think, I think it wasn't until later in their lives, I think they started to challenge or even kind of stray away from some of it. But yet still, they probably thought on those lines of, of uh, patriarchy. A song like Dirty Diana, Sunset Driver, and we're we're actually going to do a specific episode on patriarchy and misogyny. <laughs> so, ooh, it's going to get deep. But a song like Sunset Driver is, to me, similar to Stop the Love You Save, and it's it's or Little Red Corvette, if you will. You're 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 going too fast. Slow down. Uh, Friday's fighter. You're a race car driver. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's this whole idea that you get from some of Michael and Prince's songs where, and you mentioned patriarchy, as a man, they are allowed, they have that space in society to sow their oats, but women, they have to slow down. Yeah. They, they cannot <laughs> have sexual agency. 
Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting how those songs are celebrated and aren't necessarily seen in that way. But to me, you know, when when I listen to the songs, like, ooh, I, I think the beat's great, but I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know about this message. Right. <laughs> 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 and, yeah. you know, people say, oh, every Michael song's great. And like, no, every like every Michael song doesn't have to be great for you to like somebody. But sometimes people have problematic lyrics and sometimes people do things that are problematic and it's okay to critique them. (laughs) Yes. And I want to mention this is another song that a lot of people may have not heard. I mentioned this to you the other day. Props and Pounds, a song Prince did in 2004 on his Slaughterhouse album. This song is generally about positivity and how negativity won't get no play. But then there's a breakdown where he says, Love God and never wear your life get lost. Listen to the words that will save everyone. Safe sex campaign talking about a gun. With con as the prefix, suffix be the dumb. Look at them both and tell me something. What's in the Trojan horse? Rubrication. Nothing goes in my woman except the sun. And it's like when I first heard that, and I love this song mainly because of the instrumentation. I just love the bass and how he arranged it but then when he says that it's like then after he says it he says rewind and so i do rewind and i go back and i'm like why are you saying this like he's basically saying that oh okay yeah everyone's talking about safe sex use a condom but i'm not going to use a condom because nothing goes inside my woman except the sun it's like right it's a very yeah yeah, go ahead as brilliantly written as that is it's just so problematic it's problematic all the way yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like what are you suggesting that you know there shouldn't be any form of sex that people should just abstain from sex like is this a bad like what kind of spin do you have you know and so yeah that's that's another song again a lot of people don't know about it but when you hear it i'm sure a lot of people who's been catching up on prince's catalog you know you come across this song and then you hear that you're like whoa what the hell Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's oh there's there's so many like when you get into it there's the cross between the ego, the id and the super ego. And it you just see that so with the the and the id or the, the pleasure principle, I mean there's a, a <laughs> I always say Prince has a lot of those. Yeah. Maybe what what else? You talking about like in terms of the pleasure principle? The pleasure or the instinct? Yeah. Oh wow, yeah, he has a lot. I think um, a very prominent one, and this is a song that would go. We could go in, on and on about this song um, because there are various versions. The one that a lot of people are familiar with that was not released, "Extra Lovable." Mm-hmm. Um, you know the original where he's he's saying very scandalous things such as I'm on the verge of rape um, and, yeah and I think he knew he oh. had to know just what striking of a anguish in the community that song had so he redone it and in fact yeah. it's on his last album phase two and uh, obviously that part is not in but yeah. the lyrics are pretty much the same he's not really changed he didn't actually change much about it besides the structure and um, obviously he omitted that part yeah, that's a song that I know a lot of fans, as they should, would have a problem with because you just can't really rationalize that. And then another song that I think a lot, and this this is another song I don't even know 
you know, it, it, we could go on and on about the problematic lyrics that Prince has in terms of uh, the pleasure principle. But you take a song like Bambi. Oh, that's a that's a tough one. Every time I was like, oh, I love this song, but I don't really like it because you're it's it's, you know, and he was performing that towards the end. You know, mm-hmm. With an all female band, he was doing Bambi, you know, and the whole. <laughs> And surely he knew. I mean, I think, I mean, it's obviously a story, but it's a story that he felt a great deal about because he performed it a lot. And I know he knew a lot of different women who were, you know, in the LGBT community. And the fact that he did this song so regularly always strikes me as a trip for me because, you know, he's basically saying it's better with a man. Maybe you need a bleed. You know, these are lyrics that it's like, wow, why are you singing this? <laughs> but um so yeah that that also goes again to it speaks to just how he valued uh sex or just the act of being monogamous it's like you mentioned with little rare corvette he's telling the woman to slow down but then he can go out and do all of these different things so Mm. it speaks volumes like we, we we can definitely uncover a lot of this on our patriarchy episode but that is a song I thought about when you think of um just the layers upon layers of nuance and uh, double entendre that's found in a lot of these songs. And he definitely has a lot because Prince, I think, spoke a lot about sex and he usually did it in a way where it was contrasting to spirituality. Sometimes it was beautiful and it you can see the sensual uh, element. And then other times it was just definitely, you know, like he says, and let's pretend we're married. I sincerely want to. Let's pretend we're married. Mm-hmm. The, out of your mouth you know so i think there are times he had ways of just going another example is we can funk or we can you know right that's another one that was released on purple rain where he just goes in about all of these different things you know so yeah (laughs) (laughs) i think he had i think and this is another thing we talked about too prince and michael i think were really affected by the teachings as a child about sex because of their religion i mean prince was raised in seven day of venice i believe and michael being a Jehovah's witness and religion at large how it talks about sex is not done well i think i think that's one of the worst things that could happen to a child when they learn about sex from religion because it's basically abstinence obviously creates curiosity in a child to want to do it if you're telling the child oh you just can't do it and you're not teaching them the effects or just how to approach sex i think a lot of people have ill understanding about sex because of how religion has taught them about it and i think in the case of the jacksons you had joe who's yeah. frolicking with jackson five fans mm. and so michael and marlon are seeing this Mm. And not to mention that Michael, at the age of 15, was locked in a room with two sex Mm. workers. So as to be, quote unquote, deflowered, from what I understand, nothing came of it that he ended up witnessing to them. And I think that that situation, that incident, really did lead him to have an intense fascination with sex workers. This is just Jim Miller's opinion. But uh, a lot of his songs did lean towards this fascination with sex workers. I mean, he had a song called Streetwalker. And then you have the short film of The Way You Make Me Feel. And mm. I'm going to get more into that specifically when we talk about our patriarchy episode. Yes. Yeah, I, we I have can... many issues with 
with mm-hmm. that short coat. And I have issues with the song, actually, because he says, uh, and why I do think in some ways it is about a sex worker, but in the larger issue, and I'm going to get to that in a second, when he says to buy you things to keep you by my side. If it was true love, why would you have to buy someone, mm. buy someone's love? I yeah. think that lyric Marley is can't buy you a problematic love. lyric in the song. Listen closely to the lyrics. And with that, I think a lot of Michael's songs are of three elements. So the spiritual slash political element, the song talking about his inner psyche, his imperfections, his anxiety, etc. And then there's Diana Ross. So I think those are the only three subjects he talks about in his songs, more or less. I think the way you make me feel, remember the time, who is it? When he's saying she's out of my life, I think he's processing his feelings about Diana Ross in all of those songs. Given that she, quote unquote, rejected him and married someone else, he did not attend the wedding. He had intense jealousy. He created this whole scenario with her in it. So Dirty Diana, to me, was Diana Ross. It was this whole fantasy world. He made her into a groupie. And when he's singing Diana's name, like, listen close, he's like in orgasmic delight almost when he's singing her name. And this, he creates this whole scenario that he has a partner, but Diana's just like, no, he's mine tonight. Like, it's everything he wants. And then who is it? You have the short film. There's a scene where she has a card case. It has the name Diana on it. Yeah. And then just and, and and listen to the lyrics and who is it? Is it my brother? Is it a friend of mine? Like, just it sets up like who stole the woman of my dreams? She broke my heart. She's out of my life. He's I, I, everything he's singing about when he's singing those songs. Uh, butterflies. I don't know. I mean, he didn't write that, but I still think he till the day he left this earth. I think he was processing why is Diana Ross not with me. Yeah. That again, this is my opinion. All those songs he wrote about women, I think they are about Diana Ross. Yeah. Hey, I, <laughs> we, I can't wait to talk about that in detail because there are a lot of uh, connections that we can draw. But just mentioning how he was um, in the room with the sex worker with his brothers, I think of um, another one of my favorite songs that is very, I think, autobiographical. Superfly Sister. Because. Um, mm. <laughs> Sisters married to a hood. <laughs> Thinking that think, she got it. Do you good. think that's? Do you think that's about Latoya? I think so. <laughs> mm. uh, but then there are a lot of lyrics where he's like, um, you know, doing what they're doing what they used to hate, uh, and I think that's in reference to Joe. And, you know, mothers preaching Abraham, brothers yeah. they don't give a damn. It's like fuck that. <laughs> I'm gonna right. get my, you know, whatever. So. Yeah, he does have a lot of songs where he's kind of exploring his childhood and what it meant for him to see all of that at a young age. And I don't think a lot of people factor in what it means for a child. I mean, he was a child, you know, 15, you're a child, you know, you're not someone of age. A lot of people don't understand that. But adolescence and puberty is a big deal. It's a big deal for anyone. And especially for a young boy who's around all of these older women. You know, and and they're there for the purpose of sex, pleasure, and 
you know, experiencing that can be very excruciating. I think a lot of people don't really consider that. And this is kind of shameful, actually, the way we idolize young boys with older women. That's not something that I think should be praised because that's obviously rape in my definition. If an older woman is, you know, flirting with a young boy for the act of sex, when I say young boy, I mean someone who's not of 18, um, someone who's not old. I don't think that's okay. And I think a lot of times we rationalize it and say, oh, that's just, you know, sowing the royals. That's just what's supposed to happen. But if you're experiencing that at a young age from anybody, by the way, not just boys with women, but uh, men with boys or whatever factor you want to put it in. I think we don't really talk about the effect that that can have on someone's psyche and how it just inspires the fantasies that are created through songs because it, 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 it takes a tremendous impact on your psychology. We should just factor that in. Going back to Diana, you have muscles and remember the time. And so one of the things I keep thinking about is Michael talking about how his songs are for children and his inspirations are, are nature, children, etc. I do not think on 90% of a level that Michael's songs are child friendly. I really don't. I think the rhythms, people can get into the rhythms of all ages. But if you look at the short film of Remember the Time, it's got very suggestive themes in it. And I'm not talking about Michael Jackson kissing Amon. And I think that was the first time he publicly did something like that and the world was shocked. But there's a scene where she's stroking a staff. What in the world do you think that is? I mean, come on, people. <laughs> and so just a lot of these triple entendres in these short films and in these songs and then with Muscles, of course, Michael wrote that for Diana Ross. Muscles is the snake, but a snake is a euphemism for what? So I'm telling you, a lot of these songs that Michael sings and the songs that he writes for Diana Ross, he has been fixated on her for years. And I don't think he got over Diana by the time he left this earth. And for songs like A Cheater and Leave Me Alone, I think he used relationships with people. Like For instance, he was talking about a relationship with a woman and leave me alone. But of course, people took that to be a euphemism for the press because he had their short film as you know, hit, talking about his relationship with the press. That's a whole other episode. <laughs> Cheater, it's interesting because I see that as having different meanings as well. That was co-written with the great Greg Fillingdames. Yeah. But he talks about one blow to the head is all you need. I'm wondering if he was talking about the press. I'm wondering if he was talking about uh, his failing relationship with Frank Dilio. I don't know. I'd be interested in, in actually having another episode and actually like deeply decoding these songs, like taking specific songs yeah, and yeah, decoding yeah. them. And, and another song I've been thinking about is A Place With No Name. Of course, he had the inspiration to use the bed for a horse with no name from America. But I really think that's, to me, a euphemism for heaven, that how he's describing heaven. And I really think he knew 
his time was coming to not be here on earth for too long. And he was describing the Jehovah's Witness definition of heaven. I really think that's what he was doing in that song. I think it would be interesting to take time out to really decode a few of these songs and, and go into it. And it's, yeah, in terms of what you were saying with the health, I think a lot of the songs were about dealing with those issues and, you know, not just uh, physical, but mental health and the anxiety they're feeling around being overextended, being used by record companies. I mean, Prince had Slave. He had a song about it, and then he had a whole album, Emancipation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I think they had documented songs talking about their issues, not necessarily their health issues as much, but how their health was affected by the mental issues they were facing. Definitely. Great way to put it. I would say the same. I don't think they took a lot of time to talk about their physical health necessarily. Um, there are probably euphorisms found in their lyrics about it, but more so the mental strain that it had on them. Indeed. Childhood is the first song I think about when it comes to that. And Michael said, if you want to know anything about my life, listen to childhood. He's also said, if you want to know anything about my life, listen to my music. But I think childhood was Definitely. the song that was closest to him around that time. He was saying, you know, everything I'm doing is to make amends with everything that's gone on. And yeah. I'm overcompensating. Yes, I have Neverland. Yes, I have this and that. But you have to understand from my perspective, I didn't have the opportunity to experience these things other kids do. And I had to work. I was a cash cow for my family. So now I'm living out the life I want to. Did that make him appear to be weird in society? Of course it did. That's why people continue to sadly make fun of him. But he lived his life in the way he felt he thought was best at the time. And yes, there were definitely repercussions for that. I would say the same for Prince. At the time, that was you know, it was the, the best they felt they could do. It did tamper with their physical health in a lot of ways and mental. For sure. Thank you once again for listening to another episode of Music and We. We definitely appreciate your support. If you have any comments, any questions, please let us know. Yes, we will talk to you also.